And so I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what a waste of talent. Let's just take these 2,000 people as a really small sample size for the amount of people there actually are in the world who are young and who are passionate and who want to change the world, but are being completely alienated from making the change that they want to make because of the way the sector is designed. The sector isn't designed for young people. And as much as the UN and international organizations say, we want to empower young people to change the world, In practice, it's not really happening. You're listening to Meaningful, a podcast about people who give a damn and do something about it. My name is Sophia Bourne, and on this show I share stories of people who advance social change in their day-to-day lives to explore how they build meaningful lives and careers on their own terms. Today I'm speaking with Alyssa Chasman, the founder of The ID House, a global forum for young people who want to change the world. In the two years since launching The ID House, Alyssa has helped over 2,000 young people from around the world to turn their passion for certain social causes into meaningful and impactful action. We've got um, two programs now. Um, We're actually in the process of kind of phasing out one of the programs and really focusing on developing and furthering uh, one particular program. So the first program is called the Youth Delegate Program, and that's a year-long virtual fellowship where we bring together young people from all over the world who have an idea about the social change that we want to make, and we take them through a year-long process where they actually get the opportunity to turn that idea into action. So uh, we have webinars every two weeks. They meet in small groups uh, with you know each other to talk about their progress. They're assigned to a mentor throughout the year. Um, and we've done that fellowship once. We're almost done with the first installment of the fellowship. However, we are phasing it out and are no longer going to be doing that program because we want to focus on our second program, which is called Unite 2030. And Unite 2030 is a 48-hour um basically virtual virtual hackathon. Um, and I'm not sure you know how many people are familiar with the concept of what a hackathon is, but um, it's really popular like in the gaming community. And I'm not in the gaming community whatsoever, but I've heard people kind of talk about um, these hackathons where they bring like game developers all to one location and they spend, you know, 24, 48, 72 hours developing a game. And so I was thinking, wouldn't that be really cool or interesting if we put a social impact twist on that kind of framework? Um, so what we did is we developed this program uh, over a period of several months, um, and we wanted to really be accessible for young people who don't necessarily have access to a lot of opportunities. There are tons of fellowships and things like that all over the place where Um, You know, you need to fly to the UK or to Geneva or to New York or, you know, wherever it may be to participate in a program. And that's not feasible for most of the world. So we're trying to reach young people who are passionate but maybe don't have all the resources uh, to go out and, and, and create change. So We did our first one in April, um, and we do it entirely virtually, which is really cool. So they work in international teams for two days straight. We present them with a list of challenges. Um, They select one challenge that they need to solve over the 48-hour period, and they spend two days working with their teams to develop a solution for their challenge. Um, And at the end of the challenge, the finalists get the opportunity to pitch their solutions to a panel of judges. So we did our first one in April, like I said, and we we did our second one uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, 
Um, and now we're expanding upon that program and really trying to make that program really, truly global, but then as well, focusing on creating local subsidiaries of that same prop, uh, the same program. So uh, many of our young people who have come out of the program are now in the beginning phases of hosting Unite 2030 events in their local community. So focusing on really locally led solutions. Participants of the Unite 2030 program receive continuous support from the ID House through valuable resources, online events, and bespoke curriculum to become thought leaders in their communities and turn the ideas they develop during the program into reality. As such, Unite 2030 offers young people around the world the tools and resources that they need to affect change in their communities without the need of going through the traditional pathways that lead to a career in international development and that can often be exclusive and unattainable. It is these barriers to entry into the formal international development profession that inspired Alyssa in the first place to start the ID House. I have work experience in international development work. I worked um, for a women human rights organization uh, called International Women's Initiative. I worked for a child rights charity called Kids Company. Um, And then I was working doing counter extremism for an organization in South London. Um, I went through and I did my master's in human rights and then I started kind of reevaluating my career in international development and, you know, deciding I wanted to get more into kind of like the policy work in development. And so I started applying for jobs and applying for jobs and applying for jobs. I think I got, I applied for something like 200 jobs and I only had two interviews, both of which were unsuccessful. So I was like, is it me? What is wrong with me? So I'm like going over my CV and you know, talking to people and having them look at my CV, practicing my interview skills, all this kind of stuff. And in the process, I started talking to other young people saying, you know, this is what I'm going through. I don't know why I can't find a job. Like, I think I'm a relatively, you know, marketable person when it comes to looking for jobs. I don't understand why nobody's hiring me. And so in that process, I talked to so many young people who were like, yeah, me too. Still can't find a job. Checking in, still can't find a job. So I turned to this Facebook group that I was a part of just out of total curiosity. And it's this this Facebook group with about 200,000 people who are trying to make positive change in whatever way. And so I just posted something saying, you know, this is my experience. Is anybody else going through a similar challenge? And over 2,000 people responded to my post saying that they were going through a similar thing. And so I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what a waste of talent. This is like, just let's just take these 2000 people as a really small sample size for the amount of people there actually are in the world who are young and who are passionate and who want to change the world, but are being completely alienated from making the change that they want to make because of the way the sector is designed. The sector isn't designed for young people. And as much as, you know, the UN and international organizations say, we want to empower young people to change the world, in practice, it's not really happening. Um, and a lot of young people feel really disengaged and, and unempowered with, you know, how they can go and create the change that they want to make. So I wanted to, to capture that and focus on how can we make the sector a place where young people can make the change that they want to make and feel connected to each other where they don't feel like they need to be, you know, 
using all this, you know, high level jargon or have an invitation to speak at a high level political forum or attend these big conferences and events and all this kind of stuff where they can still feel empowered to make the change that they want to make. I had the incredible honor of, of having the opportunity to speak at a UN event specifically designed for young people. And I spoke on a panel. Um, and before I spoke on the panel, I was kind of walking around and listening to different panel discussions and, and uh, kind of getting a feel for the event itself. And this particular event at the UN is geared to your young people aged like 15 to I think 26 is their kind of demographic. So you've got like 15 year old kids sitting in the seats of the UN, listening to people speak about their experiences in making change. Um, and I was sitting in on a refugee panel and they were talking all about the refugee crisis and they did a and a section at the end. And one, you know, kid who must have been just 15, like really, really young, you know, stood up and spoke into the microphone. And he said, you know, I'm just, I'm really young. What can I do in my community to help with the refugee crisis. And so someone on the panel, their response to this child was, you need to do more cross-sector collaboration. And to me, I was like, that's a kid. That's like a, that's a, an actual child that you're telling him that he needs to go out and do cross-sector collaboration to, to stop the refugee crisis. How, how is that kid going to go back into his community and go, I feel empowered now to go out and make change because someone just told me that cross-sector collaboration is the key. You know, that kid wants to go out into his community and have a fundraiser or a clothing drive or go and volunteer in Calais or, you know, do real stuff that creates real change. He doesn't want to hear about cross-sector collaboration. So I think that the way, I mean, there's lots of ways that I think the sector is alienating, but I think a lot of it is the way that we talk to young people and the language that we use. I think a lot of it boils down to linguistics. And, you know, if you read through the sustainable development goals and their targets, you know, for me as an educated person with a master's degree and experience working in the sector, I got to read that thing, you know, five times through before I truly really understand what all this stuff means. So I think if we shift a lot of the language towards focusing on innovation and practical solutions. I'm not saying that like cross-sector collaboration isn't important because it is, but if we're trying to empower more young people, we need to focus on getting them to understand that the way to create change is by developing real, innovative, tangible solutions where you can go through and you can see the impact and measure the impact. Initially, Alyssa envisioned the ID House model to be focused on helping students and graduates interested in international development to enter the sector as aid professionals. But pretty soon she realized that the sector itself was the real problem that she wanted to tackle with her business. It's been for sure a journey. And I look back like a few months ago, I look back at ID House's like first ever business plan and I laughed because what I thought I was doing to tackle the problem wasn't really what I needed to be doing to tackle the problem. First, we were targeting 
which was totally the wrong move, but to, to target young people who were trying to enter the development sector, who felt disconnected. So trying to like connect them more to the sector that is already existing rather than changing the, the sector in itself and challenging that kind of status quo that exists in the development sector. So um, we were doing that and working with that target demographic for maybe like nine months before I realized that things weren't really working. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the people that were coming to us were saying, I, you know, don't have opportunities like this. How can I get involved? And they, you know, were mostly not people in the development sector or young people trying to enter the development sector, but people that just wanted to make a change. So yeah, almost, almost probably about a year now we did a switch to focusing really on changing the sector as a whole or challenging it as a whole and focusing on that instead. And we've had a lot more success um, approaching it that way, which is largely in part to why we're getting rid of the youth delegate program after it's finished, or, you know, maybe we'll reconsider redesigning it. But when it was created, it was created around this demographic of getting young people into the development sector. Hello, Sophia here with a quick announcement. Did you know that in addition to this podcast, I also have a newsletter? Theories of Change is a monthly newsletter that is packed with inspiration and motivation to help you live better, work better, and advance the change that matters. If you like Meaningful, then you will definitely like Theories of Change. To find out more and subscribe, go to Sophia, that's S-O-F-Y-A, dazwords.com slash newsletter. Now, back to the show. And why do you think that your initial model of connecting young people to the sector was not the right way forward? Um, because in a way, I felt like I was compromising on my own values. Because I was like, I'm here talking about, you know, the sector is, you know, not doing this and is not doing this. And but then at the same point, I wasn't challenging that. I was just trying to elevate young people closer to what the sector already was rather than trying to challenge it. And I think at the end of the day, like looking back now, I was like, I wasn't trying to actually focus on the problem that I was trying to solve. Like I was trying to challenge the status quo, but I wasn't doing that in practice. So they weren't in alignment with each other. And so I had to look back and reflect on my own values and saying, you know, like the sector is doing all this stuff that is really, really wonderful. And don't get me wrong, the international development sector is moving a lot of things forward. We're a lot farther along than we used to be, but we still have a long way to go, particularly in empowering you. So I had to sit down and say, I can still work within the sector and not completely like iceberg myself off of the international development sector as a whole. But, you know, still challenge things, but still bring people to the table at the same time. Um, but it was a long process of kind of reflection and, and actually doing things in practice when I was like, ah, no, this isn't working. And, and in hindsight, I should have approached it in a different way. But I thought that I had done all the research that I needed to do at the beginning. I was confident that I had, you know, that I knew everything and that I was like, cool, you know, I did a survey. I talked to a bunch of people. I met a ton of people for coffee. I was like, I'm ready to get people into development. So I was confident that I knew it all and that I had, you know, understood the sector as a whole, but becoming, you know, working in it in two years, in the last two years has changed my viewpoint of how to actually get to where we need to be. 
Yeah, what you say about um, the international development sector, I think that definitely resonates. And I think we see it beyond this sector as well, where we're finding these, um, you know, old, well-established institutions that are just set up in a very, um, you know, like, not hostile way, but in a very alienating way, especially for the younger generations. So for millennials, for Gen Z. Um, and so I want to ask you what you think is the biggest misconception about young people in international development sector right now? Ooh, good question. The biggest misconception about young people in the international development sector. Um, I think in particular, a lot of people underestimate our actual ability to make change. Um, you know, for example, you know, from what I found in doing my research when I started the ID House is that, granted, this is not a scientific study, but um, from the young people that I surveyed, they worked as a volunteer or an intern on average for two years before they found their first job in the development sector. And I think that's absurd, first of all, because who can afford to work unpaid for two years? Not many people. Um and I think by permitting this kind of structure of how the development sector works, we're making the assumption that young people wouldn't have the skills graduating from college to go out there and, and do real practical things that are making contributions towards uh, creating a better world. But, you know, then again, how do you change that? And I don't have the answer to that question. Um, when we're dealing with really complex issues, of course, you need experienced people who are making decisions at the top to, you know, trickle back down. So I don't necessarily know how to challenge that. My way of challenging it is by, you know, helping people to develop their own solutions rather than trying to conform to a sector that, um, you know, kind of conveys this idea that they're not valued or that their input isn't valued. Can you talk more about the business model behind the ID House? Yeah, so we're, um, we're actually a social enterprise. So, you know, I know a lot of people are confused, I guess, about social enterprise. So legally, we are a business the same as any other business. We are a for-profit entity. We have a for-profit side and obviously we measure our impact uh, or we measure our success by impact and profit as well. So that's what that means for us. Um, we are soon going to be opening up a nonprofit side as well so we can juggle both. But I truly, from a personal level, truly believe in, in social enterprise to, as a path to sustainability. And that's largely from my experience working for charities that weren't succeeding um, and seeing the negative side to charities, not that there's anything wrong with charities, but I was like, I want something that is uh, financially sustainable. I mean, with any type of funding, whether it's impact investment or grant funding or whatever it is, you always are answering to someone, I guess, in a way. So like if you've got an impact investor, you've got to give them their money back, right? And they want all these things in return and they want to see you making all these progress and reaching these benchmarks and stuff like that. And similar with grants, you've got all these rules that you need to follow and it's very strict and there's guidelines about how you use the money and what the change needs to make and you need to keep the funders happy. And so there's a certain level of freedom that comes with social entrepreneurship as a 
you know, early stage entrepreneur where I didn't have to give up any control and I'm not a control freak by any means, but I was able to steer the ship in the direction that I wanted to go and bring my voice to the ID house and to what we're doing rather than allowing other voices to cloud my judgment when I was still figuring out what I'm going to do and how it's going to work. I think it's important to challenge people's notions of social enterprise because I think people think that it's this money hungry kind of concept where, oh, it's just like you just want money or the CEO wants to take a big salary. I guarantee you it is not that. <laughs> and maybe it may be for some, but for me, it's more about I want to make sure that I have profit that if, you know, if we stop making money today, then I can tap into are, you know, we've got money still in the bank that we can utilize, not if we run out of our grant funding, we don't get another grant, then we're done for. Um, so largely where we get our cash is from individuals who pay. We have a very, very small fee to participate in our programs. So that's where we get a large amount of our money. Um, but then, you know, there's there's the downsides to it as well, which are which is a, a, a more of a values thing for me of we're saying we want, we believe that everyone should be able to change the world, not just people at the top or not just people who are well-connected or have the most education. We want to reach people who are just passionate people. But, you know, even though if you register for Unite 2030, you know, two months in advance, the price is 25 pounds. Well, to a lot of people that that's, you know, affordable or maybe something that you save up for. For many people, it's not affordable. It's it's still not affordable. So, so that's I, for me. That's an emotional pull of that's still contradictory to my values. So now we're at a point though where we've done the program. We're moving forward with the program. We're expanding the program. So how can we strategically bring in partners to help us to bring that part of our values to life? To bring in you know to allow people who who can't afford a twenty five pound fee. Uh, to be able to participate uh, by giving them scholarship. So now now we're at a point where we're trying to kind of, I knew that was going to be in the future, but we needed to obviously prove concept first and, and now we're there. So now we can focus on bringing that value to life. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get interested in international development to begin with? Oh, um, it's kind of been like, I don't know, sort of a trickle down effect, I guess. So I, um, I was really active with like my church youth group when I was in high school and I did some service trips. I did Habitat for Humanity in the U.S., um, that kind of thing, did feeding the homeless, more service oriented work, which was great, um, but not kind of the more social justice side of things. Um, and uh, I had a personal experience when I was in college where um, I lost one of my close friends to suicide after she was sexually assaulted um, on her college campus. And so I was devastated and I spent a long time being, you know, absolutely heartbroken and outraged and, you know, real downtrodden about the entire situation. And, and after maybe about a year after that happened, I, I sat up and I, I was like, why am I? I'm so angry. I'm so, so angry. I need to start channeling this anger into something else. So I walked in that day to the Relationship and Sexual Violence Prevention Center at my university. 
Um, and I worked as an educator uh, for two and a half years at the RSVP Center uh, there, working, going around the campus and learning about sexual violence and teaching about sexual violence. Um, and then, yeah, then I, I was, I did my degree in sociology. Um, so, well, I actually, I was doing a degree in psychology and then I decided that I wasn't really oriented toward that kind of thing. Uh, so I switched to sociology and that kind of just carried over. I did, you know, I, I did my undergraduate thesis on, uh, sexual violence in prisons against transgender people. Um, and so that kind of just carried forward and I wanted to work in the charity sector. And so it just really kind of spiraled from there. Um, but that was sort of the initial spark that empowered me to go out there and do something. Do you think your educational background helps you in what you do now? Um, this is a good question. And I kind of, I do, I do struggle with this sometimes. Yes. In a way, I think it does. I think it gave me the theoretical knowledge that I needed to talk about specific social issues, but I don't do as much of that as I would if I were to gone into a traditional job. I mean, I still, I still obviously do, but, um, in terms of a practical, practical stuff, no, I would say not really. Um, and that's, that's nothing against the universities that I went to. They were wonderful. And I gained a lot of, you know, theoretical knowledge and, and the ability to talk about human rights abuses and, um, you know, to do the work that I did previously before I did ID House. But not really, to be honest. But I don't think if I did even like a business degree, that would have changed that. Maybe I'm just kind of cynical, but um, I think the formal education system, you know, similar to the development sector, doesn't doesn't focus on practical support. Some do, some do, but that was not particularly my experience. And how did it feel to take the leap into entrepreneurship so early in your career? Was it um, was it scary at all, or did you find it quite natural? I'm 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 very lucky that I have an incredibly supportive family, and that you know my dad is an entrepreneur, my mom is an entrepreneur, so it's kind of hardwired in my brain that this is something that I'm going to do. And I always laugh because my dad has always encouraged me to start a business since I was like literally 15. And I always said, no, I'm not doing it. I'll do it when I'm ready. I'm going to do work first and then I'll figure it out. Nope, I'm not going to do it. And then when I started kind of exploring, starting the ID house was like very early, early, early stages. And shortly before this, I had had a conversation with my dad where I was like, look, I need you to stop talking about entrepreneurship. I need you to support me in my current career and continue supporting me in my current career. And if I decide to become an entrepreneur at some time in my life, I will. Um, and so he had shut up about it for a while, but I had started to look into starting ID house and I called my dad and I was like, dad, don't say anything, but if you were to start a business, what would be the first three things that you would do? And so he said them and then I was like, okay, great. Have a good day. And I hung up. Uh, because I didn't want him to put any more uh, pressure or get carried away or too excited about the prospect of me starting a business. But I've been really lucky that they've been unbelievably supportive and they've, you know, helped me in a lot of ways in terms of like uh, helping me understand like legal jargon and financial stuff because I don't have a business degree. And that's been a huge weight off of my shoulders, being able to know that I have 
people to turn to if there's something that I don't know and people who have gone before me who can give me that kind of guidance. Um, it's still really scary. It's scary a lot. Um, I, you know, worked as a nanny for a long time while I was setting up the ID house so that I could, you know, pay my bills and, and feed myself and all that kind of good stuff, have some kind of semblance of a social life. Um, and it was really hard. I was like, why am I doing this? I could, I could just have a regular job. And sometimes I do think that like when things get hard, it's very easy to revert back to, I could just go get a regular job and this would all be over. I could come in, someone would tell me what to do every day and, and this would be done. And there wouldn't be, you know, sometimes financial insecurity or, you know, sometimes management problems or things going wrong and, and all that kind of stuff. It's so easy to just flip back to that mindset. But at the end of the day, I know that this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And this is like, this is the person that I am. Like I am way better suited for entrepreneurship than I ever was in any other type of job. And I'm 5 million times more happy in this kind of job than I am anywhere else. So, you know, maybe one day ID house won't exist anymore. I don't think that will be the case. And I certainly hope that that's not the case. And I may have to revert back, but I think no matter what, I will always find my way back to entrepreneurship because I, at the end of the day, the insecurity and the um, stuff that goes wrong is a hundred percent worth it for the actual change that I get to see happening in front of my eyes. And I would, you know, I would do it again tomorrow, um, taking that leap and, and starting from scratch. I would do it again tomorrow if, if I had the choice. So. What does success mean to you? And do you think you are successful? Ooh, um, what does success mean to me? That's a good question. Self-reflection now. Um, to me, I think he kind of defined it in two ways. Like to me, success is like just being, you know, being in a place where I'm content with my job content with my personal life and have managed to balance them both. Uh, but, you know, there's also another element to success, which is, you know, you need to have money. You need to have, be living a sustainable lifestyle. Uh, you need to have a sustainable you know, business or, you know, steady income or whatever it may be. So for me, I'd like to just say like, Oh, when I, when I'm, hundred percent happy. I know that I'll be successful, but I know that that's not, I'll, I'll never be hundred percent happy. I don't think I should be hundred percent happy because I should always be chasing more and always be thirsting for more. Um, so I'm not to the level of success that I want to be yet. Certainly not. I've got a long way to go both with the ID house and from, you know, a personal level, a lot more things that I want to achieve and I want to accomplish, but I'm quite, I don't know. I push myself quite a bit. Like I like to step out of my comfort zone and, and challenge myself constantly. I, you know, promised myself a few years ago that I wanted to visit every country in the European union. And then I would be content in my traveling. And I did that and I still wasn't content in my traveling. 
So now I've, you know, been to 60 countries and I'm still not content. I'm always like chasing, chasing, chasing after something. Um, so I don't know if I'll ever get to a point where I feel like I'm successful. I've done it. I'm, I'm, this is a success, but we'll see. Um, I hope so. But, you know, in the same sense, I do like the chase. Mm, yeah. Um, and what would you say are the first three things that anyone who wants to start a business should do? Um, so first off, I would say surround yourself with supportive people would be the first thing. Um, you know, if you were to talk to my dad, which is part of the advice that he gave me when I said the three things, he said, find a team. So I would take that kind of more broadly as you don't necessarily need to find a team who's going to actually in a practical sense, help you to start a business. You can, if you're, if you're a team oriented person, um, but you're going to get a lot of people asking questions and doubting you in the early stages of uh, starting a business. So surround yourself with the people that are going to uplift you and challenge you and encourage you to do what you want to do. Um, because if you let other people cloud your, your path, then you're going to get distracted or you're going to give up. Or it's really, really, really easy to, you know, say, you know, they were right. I should just get a regular job and or keep going with my regular job and keep going. Um, so, yeah, I guess the first one, surround yourself with uh, people that uplift you. Um, the second one would be do your research, um, which was a mistake that I made, even though I thought that I did research. It's really important to understand the people that you're trying to help or the, your target audience, if you want to, you know, talk about it from more business sense, who, who you're targeting, who are your customers, um, because there's so many businesses that um, start and fail because they weren't targeting the right people or focusing on the right thing. Um, so do a lot of research. And then the third thing would be, you know, really focus on developing your minimum viable product. Um, and do that with as low budget as possible. So develop, you know, one thing that you can deliver that your customer wants and focus on doing that and perfecting that and making that really good. And then you can move forward. Um, and that may not be overnight, you know, it, you know, like I said, we did a bunch of different programs and a bunch of little mini projects and events and stuff like that before we came to Unite 2030. And I was like, ah, this is our MVP. Um, so that was a year and a half of trialing and testing. Um, but if you really, really focus on, you know, getting out that MVP, then you can focus on growth from there. You can't do everything. You will never be able to do everything, particularly in the beginning phases. If you're one pe one person, two people, a small team of people. Um, so really spend that time developing your MVP. Uh, and then you can begin to look forward uh, towards everything else that, that can expand from there. Thank you for listening to Meaningful and thank you to Alyssa for sharing her story. 
You can find the show notes for this episode at Sophia, that's S-O-F-Y-A doeswords.com slash Meaningful. And to be notified about future episodes, make sure you're subscribed to Meaningful on your favorite podcast app. And if you haven't already, please make sure to rate and review Meaningful on iTunes and share it with anyone who you think might like it. Until next time. Thank you.